Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Our last seminar of the term, so we won't uh, convene like this again until I guess we started. Yeah, February. So nice long break after this, but we're going to go out on a very high note. We've got uh, Professor Danielle Danny Sellermeyer. Uh, from the Department of Sociology and Social Policy at the University of Sydney. She's quite a prominent researcher. I'm sure many of you already know about her work. This book is hot off the presses. It's still got that new book smell. Um, It's called The Prevention of Torture, an Ecological Approach. It's out with Cambridge University Press, and I will pass this around so you can see it. And I'll just give a little um, from the... uh, from the flyer here. So, Professor of Sociology and Social Policy at Sydney. Her research stands at the interface of theories exploring the multidimensional nature of injustice and the practice of human rights. Uh, recently completed a European Union funded multi country project on the prevention of torture, focusing on everyday violence in the security sector. sector. Publications include Sins of the Nation and The Ritual of Apology, and that was out with Cambridge in 2009, A a Cultural Theory of Law in the Modern Age with Bloomsbury this year, and The Prevention of Torture, which you're looking at. She's now leading a new interdisciplinary initiative on multi-species justice, and she was telling me she's just about to go to the Kimberley uh, for a research trip. So very, very interesting and rich research life. I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Um, It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much, Lou, for inviting me. And I don't know who the traditional owners are here. The Turrbal and Yugara. So I just want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land. Um, And uh, nice to be on your land. Uh, So I'm going... uh, It's... You know, when when you've done a huge project and written a book on it, it's always difficult to know which slice to present. Um, So I'm going to talk to you about uh, some of the main arguments in the book and present a bit of empirical material and and some of the theoretical material. Um, But I want to start uh, with four vignettes that I thought would kind of allow us to dive into the story. So the first occurred during a conversation with a regional representative of the National Human Rights Commission in Sri Lanka. He was posted to a town in the northwest where we were doing research and after a lot of bureaucratic wrangling he received permission to grant us an interview. So we're talking about the fairly regularised use by the police of violence against detainees, what I've come to call banal torture, um, as distinct from the more spectacular torture which tends to evoke and dominate the the media and scholarly representations. Banal torture, the more everyday violence that occurs in in places of detention in much of the world um, and involves beatings, various forms of humiliation, but also some of the forms of torture that we're more familiar with, like electricity or prolonged stress positions. So the police, this officer from the National Human Rights Commission is explaining to us that um, if people are arrested for doing something wrong, they generally accept that they deserve to be punished during their custody, and punishment means being the object of violence. Most people who come to see him, he recalls, say things like, and I quote, it's okay to hit us if we've done something wrong, but they hit us for something we have not done. And he continues, if they're wrongdoers, they don't come to the Human Rights Commission, even if they're tortured. 
Now, that's a sentiment that we hear quite often, and in the same district a few days before, I'd been doing an interview with a female lawyer who laughed when I asked her um, if people were beaten by the police, and she told me that if you're from a lower class and you're arrested for a crime like theft, this is something you should expect. So the second vignette is also from Sri Lanka, and this occurred during a focus group that we were running during a human rights training for lower, for junior and mid-career, mid-ranking uh, military officers. So one of the officers, one of the female officers in the group, commented to members of our team um, that if they were in the military, if we were in the military, um, we would have very different views about torture and human rights. Now that's a sentiment that we heard quite often, um, people in the security sector saying that uh, people like us, human rights people, didn't understand the realities of the job, we came in with our abstract outside ideas, um, and that's also something that other researchers working from this more ethnographic, sociological approach have heard. So Rachel Wall, who conducted extensive interviews with police in North India, made similar observations, um, pointing out that from their perspective, um, it wasn't just that we didn't understand, but we didn't understand that what they were doing was a form of justice and for the public good. So it wasn't just that they were rejecting norms of justice, but they thought that the way that we understood justice was really just completely abstracted from the reality of their lives. So on this occasion, um, my Sri Lankan colleague responded by asking whether this officer and the others who were in the group agreed in principle um, that as set out in the Sri Lankan constitution of fundamental rights, that torture is an absolute non-derogable right. Um, and the trainer responded by saying that, of course, it would be wrong if, let's call her Marissa, one of the, one of the university people who was there with us, it would be wrong um, to torture her because it would be a violation of her dignity. But that might, be the, that might not be the case if we were torturing a wrongdoer or a criminal or someone else. Um, so implicitly what she was saying was that dignity, which we think of as this universal Kantian quality, which is the ground of universal human rights, um, was unevenly distributed. Um, and though she didn't explicitly say it in this language, this differential distribution of dignity um, was a principle that could well describe much of what we found in our fieldwork. So levels of civilization often correlated with formal education, wealth, political power, position in a social network, were taken as the appropriate indexes for, for according dignity and thereby respect for human rights. Or perhaps more accurately, violence inflicted upon the uncivilised, read the poor, the disenfranchised, ethnic and sexual minorities, people with drug or alcohol problems, was not really understood as a human rights violation at all, but according to what was a kind of quasi-naturalist logic, was seen as what was required to discipline such people and keep order in place. Um, so this understood link between state-sanctioned violence and bringing order and civilization to barbarians came through in the incident, which is the, um, the third vignette I want to share. This time um, is in Nepal. We're speaking with a retired senior government official 
who was, somewhat ironically, actually acting as the liaison between our local partner in Nepal, so the human rights organisation we were working with, and police and state authorities. So we're interviewing him about the use of torture by police and the armed police force in Nepal and the difficulties that human rights organisations have had in successfully eradicating torture even after the end of the civil war. And I quote from the interview, if we follow Scandinavian countries' approach, he says, we can't manage law and order, rule of law. There people feel proud to pay tax to government, but here people feel proud not to pay tax. How can we get by them without torture? Now, the source of the statement, effectively someone from within our own team, was shocking, but the sentiment was not shocking in the, in the um, context of the fieldwork. So during a visit to a police station in Nepal, for example, we overheard civilians who were there saying to friends, for these types of thieves, legal action's not appropriate, you have to hit them on the hands. Now these sentiments resonate strongly with uh, the sociologist Marnia Lazreg's observation of the discourses that surrounded torture by Al of Algerians by French imperial authorities during the independence struggles. Um, as we know, the French systematically used torture during the independence movements to preserve imperial rule in Algeria. But even as they did so, they justified the need for such torture um, through a discourse of civilizational difference. Uh, so I'm just re going to read you a quote from Colonel Antoine Argot, who was a French uh, officer who played a very active role in the campaign for torture. Um, Algerians were not only, quote, eminently suited for terror tactics, but they called for them. Their nature needed them by virtue of their being primitive savages, primitives with savage impulses. Now, Lazarig's analysis concerns the use of torture during wars of occupation and across national divides. So she also looks at the contemporary use of torture in the context of American neo-imperialism. Um, and in the cases that we were examining in Nepal and Sri Lanka, the uncivilised other, whose primitive state demanded torture, was a co-national, distinguished not by uh, race or, or, or um, nationality, but along various other dimensions like class, ethnicity, indigeneity, religion, education, criminality, or other putative indicators of civilization. The fourth vignette takes us back to Sri Lanka, and here our team is running a workshop um, with police and military participants held somewhat problematically in a fairly low-end resort which is actually owned and run by the military. Now, that might sound a bit strange, but at the time, the still President Mahinda Rajapaksa was also the Minister of Defence, Urban Development, Law and Order, Minister for Highway, Ports and Shipping. So you can see the kind of imbrication of politics and development. Um, so this is fairly late in the project, and at this point... Uh, the personnel with whom we're working in the security sectors are designing projects to address uh, processes or structures within their part of the organisation that in some way facilitate or support the use of torture and human rights violations. So in the group is uh, someone in the Sri Lankan Coast Guard, but he's also the principal, the deputy principal of a school. And he doesn't want to do his project to the Coast Guard directly, but rather to work in his school 
where he sees the seeds of the normalisation of institutional violence, which has subsequently taken up in the security sector. Um, so corporal punishment, um, as we repeatedly heard in our field work, is completely normalised in Sri Lanka, even though it's been outlawed since 2005. In fact, teachers and principals to whom we spoke often boasted about the respect that they earn by virtue of using corporal punishment. In language, it was very similar to the way that people talked about you can respect the military because they keep people in line using violence. So during this work, let's call him Dinesh, starts speaking about the fact that he wants to do a project to curtail the use of corporal punishment in his school. And he's speaking quite passionately about the fact that he doesn't just think that corporal punishment is a wrong in itself, but that it conditions the normalisation of violence, which is later taken up in security sector organisations. Um, he has barely got these words out of his mouth and the others vehemently leap on him and say that had they not been subject to corporal punishment during their school days, they wouldn't be the men they are today. Um, now, I think they were certainly making an important point, but the one that I took from their comments was, I think, a bit different to the one that they intended. So these four vignettes, I hope, point not just to some of the key findings of the research, which I'm going to pull out, um, but also to what we might call the flavour or the feel of the field. So torture, and this is really the heart of the argument, far from being an aberrant practice that evokes horror and condemnation, is in many ways continuous with a variety of aspects of the everyday world and everyday practice. In this sense, it's embedded in worlds that produce and are reproduced by it. And I argue that we can neither understand what perpetuates torture nor can we prevent it unless we get our hands around these worlds in which it's embedded. Um, now, for people who come from an anthropological or a sociological background, that claim might seem fairly non-controversial and obvious. Um, but it's in stark contrast to the predominant approaches to torture prevention that have dominated the human rights approaches, which I'm going to talk about a little bit in a few moments, that tend to focus on individuals, on incentives, on knowledge and values of individual perpetrators, and whose main medium is formal law. So before critically analysing those approaches and coming back to some of the main findings, I just want to step back and say a little bit about the background to the project so you can contextualise what I'm talking about. So it's always difficult to know uh, where to start a story, but I'll start in 2011. Um, I, I had long been very interested in the social, cultural, political, economic underpinnings of human rights violations. And I applied for and received a large grant from the European Union to work on the prevention of torture with a focus on Sri Lanka and Nepal. The particular orientation of the approach wasn't legal but was sociological and institutional. That is, we were interested in exploring the range of causal factors, um, including what goes on in uh, security sector institutions themselves, that caused and sustained torture. I'll return to that in a moment. Um, but I want to say a few words about site selection because I know that there are Asian um, specialists in this group. So as many of you know, both of these countries had, until fairly recently, been in long periods of civil war. In Sri Lanka, they'd just come out of the civil war. Um, and during those years, the security forces, not only the military, but also the police, and in Nepal, 
the armed police force, which was created during the Civil War, were responsible for widespread and systematic human rights violations, disappearances, enforced disappearances, killings and torture. In both cases, torture had been and remained endemic, um, and in both cases, the countries found themselves in what I would call potentially transitional moments. Um, we've got fairly good evidence to indicate that institutional reform is easier to achieve during transitional periods. So it was in some ways a good time to try and intervene in these countries. Now, how open to or capable of undergoing authentic transitions um, is something that needs to be called into question in the case of both countries. Um, and it was true that after the official cessation of war, both countries made rhetorical commitments to recommit themselves to respect for human rights and the rule of law, uh, but there was very good reason to be sceptical about the authenticity of those commitments, especially in Sri Lanka, where the Rajapaksa family, which had ruled the country during the civil war, remained in power and, in fact, with an authoritarian or semi-authoritarian form of government. And having tried to work on human rights reform during what I would call a faux transitional period, I'd certainly argue that with the exception of certain overt forms of, a, of um, armed violence, there was much more institutional continuity than there was a break. In other words, the political, social and cultural conditions that had underpinned the systematic human rights violations were largely left in place. Um, and perhaps we can talk about this during the discussion if people was interested. Although it wasn't part of the project, the two countries actually, and this was certainly not part of the design, but it, what, it came out, they, they exhibited two very different, almost diametrically opposed forms of political organisation, each of which in its distinctive way impeded structural institutional reform. So in the case of Sri Lanka, the problem was a very verticalistic, authoritarian form of rule. In, Sri Lanka, in Nepal, the problem was the persistent fragmentation and instability of political organisations. So two very different types of impediments to bringing about sustained <coughs> institutional reform. But, and I remember when I was very early in, on in the project, I was um, a visiting scholar in Berlin and I was talking about it and the people there were talking to me about site selection and why don't you choose a site that has these characteristics and these characteristics and I didn't really have a good answer for them then but I do now. Um, which was if you're looking for the ideal site for human rights reform, you're unlikely to be working in countries that actually need human rights reform. Um, so it was these two sites fraught with their entrenched political pathologies that we were working in. So our objective, broadly stated, was to conduct research on the factors that caused and sustained torture with a view to developing approaches to preventing torture that could work at, at transforming these type of institutional drivers. Um, now, I already mentioned, and I just want to say again in passing this term, banal torture, I want to make clear that our research wasn't focused on spectacular torture, the kind of Guantanamo Bay, high-end um, political, you know, where there's a clear line from the political elite to the torture, but this much more normalised everyday torture, which is in fact by far the predominant use of torture um, around the the, the world. It's less dramatic, it uh, gets less headlines, but in many ways the, uh, the pathological effects 
not only on individuals but on institutions are very similar. I'm happy to talk about that more if people want. Um, so what we were trying to do was to devise and then pilot novel and potentially more effective ways of getting at this type of very embedded institutional violence. Um, in many respects, the approach that we envisaged and our choice to try to attend to these potentially broader range of factors that contribute to the use of torture um, was, was, was driven for me by the evidence that we have that the existing forms of torture prevention um, have been relatively ineffective. Um, so impact evaluation indicates quite worryingly that torture has largely been resistant to prevention efforts. Now, one way of interpreting that is just that we haven't done enough of it and we have to do more of the same. Um, but I thought it was more interesting to think critically about existing approaches and what is it about them that might render them relatively ineffective. Or more precisely, how do the scope conditions of their success mean that in many of the countries where prevention is most needed, their effectiveness is constrained? Um, and that's one way of thinking into what positive approaches might look like. Um, so I want to talk a bit now about the dominant approaches to torture prevention. Um, and I'm going to speak about three characteristics of those approaches that I think are important and very and, and help us in thinking through uh, what might be wrong with the way that we've been thinking about this. The first is that a significant proportion of prevention interventions focus their efforts on individual perpetrators. That's the case both with criminalisation, which is the most uh, prevalent uh, prevention approach and also human rights education and training which is increasingly being used. So to put it briefly, criminalisation can be said to focus on the agency of individual perpetrators in so far as it seeks to deter um, people by altering their risk benefit calculus and education and training seeks to alter individuals' knowledge about human rights and their values so that they'll decide to conform with human rights norms as opposed to violating them. So in a sense, both of them locate causality or at least proximate causality at the level of individual perpetrators. The problem is, to the extent that we understand torture as systemic or an institutional problem, or to the extent that we recognise that the causes of torture overflow and flow into individual preferences, decisions or choices of individual agents um, this focus on individuals who could be identified as the agents of torture is coming in too far downstream, right? So you need to kind of move in further upstream. And that's going to affect the effectiveness of, constrain the effectiveness of the interventions. Now, what I've said, of course, needs qualification because you can also understand criminal law as someone like Nicola Lacey argues, as constitutive. So it's constitutive of the public norms that then shape how people make sense of the world and behave. Um, but even then, it's a fairly narrow understanding of how you shape a normative environment, and it relies a, to a significant extent on formal law. Um, so that's the second, the second characteristic of prevention approaches that I wanted to focus on, which is the overwhelming emphasis on formal law as the primary, if not the sole, steering mechanism for bringing about reform. 
Um, so there has been a recent multi-country qualitative and quantitative evaluation of different approaches to prevent torture, and they found that the best way to prevent torture is to bring about changes to um, a range of factors that they call the, the conditions of detention, so things like uh, medical inspections done, can families come to visit, um, is, there is there incommunicado detention, etc. But at the same time, they pulled out the actual reform, the effectiveness of the actual reform from the effectiveness of laws which are brought in to bring about those reforms. And does that make sense? Um, and so what most often happens is we recognise that we need to change the conditions of detention and the way we do it is we introduce laws to bring about conditions of detention. So if you evaluate just the effectiveness of the laws, you get much less effectiveness than the changes in the conditions itself, but the most prevalent way of trying to bring about changes in the, in the, in the conditions is to introduce laws, and that's the end of the story. Um, so this overwhelming emphasis on legal reform results in a status quo where other approaches to institutional or normative reform are seen as subordinate to or following from legal reform. This emphasis on um, formal law is particularly problematic under three types of conditions, all of which apply in countries where regularised police torture is, is the most endemic, including Nepal. The first is where the rule of law is weak and where security sector institutions have relative autonomy from centralised authority. Um, so, for example, there was an interesting study done on the relative failure of anti-torture laws as compared to laws constraining other types of state-sanctioned human rights violations in Latin America. And what they found, or what they argued, was that it was the decentralisation of torture, the fact that it was happening at relatively autonomous sites, that made it so resistant to law as, a, as an intervention strategy. The second circumstance where we might have reason to be sceptical about the efficacy of law is where formal law operates alongside rather than above other re regulatory regimes. Um, and those other regulatory regimes might be other institutional orders, say the de facto reward and punishment system that operates in a security sector organisation, what in fact leads to people being promoted or being disciplined as opposed to what the formal law says, so what is the actual regulatory regime in the institution. Or the parallel regulation might occur in a more embedded and implicit way so the fields where torture is most prevalent, it might be that the recognised forms of social, cultural and symbolic capital are ones that are organised in a way that runs contrary to the formal law. So, for example, in the police, it might be that the highest symbolic capital is attached to being tough and violent, um, whereas the formal law is... is is saying that capital goes with respecting human rights. So you have this kind of tension between the realities of the distribution of capital and what, uh, what the formal law deems ought to be the case. The third related context in which reliance of law on law as a steering mechanism can be relatively ineffective is where the practices and actions in question are legitimated and so supported by a network of deeply entrenched norms and understandings of the world. And I'm sure many of you have come across this in your research. So I recently supervised 
a Nepali Dalit student who was looking at social justice for Dalit in Nepal and, you know, consistently finding that you've got formal laws that outlaw a range of practices, but this embedded set of cultural, religious and social practices that are effectively operating as a, a kind of type of legal pluralism that we call one law and we call the other culture. Um, now, importantly, I would argue that these normative, symbolic, institutional, material conditions um, shouldn't be seen as separate, but as co-constitutional and mutually reinforcing. Uh, so the effective normative environment is embedded in practices and systems of capital distribution, which are themselves distri uh, legitimated by those norms. Unless formal law enters into these practice-sustaining circulations, it will remain epiphenomenal. So you've got this rich circulation between practices, material conditions and informal no laws, and, lo and the formal law kind of floats above that. Um, so the third characteristic of the dominant approaches to prevention that I wanted to call into question, so the first was the individualism, the second was the emphasis on formal law, um, the third is the, um, is the heavy use of naming and shaming as a strategy of human rights intervention. So a few years ago, Ken Roth, who's the executive director of, the, uh, of Human Rights Watch, wrote an article in uh, Human Rights Quarterly where he argued that um, the reason that human rights organisations shouldn't take on social and economic rights is because naming and shaming was the, the kind of go-to strategy for human rights organisations. And if you're going to name and shame, you need really clear perpetrators and victims. And in the case of social and econo economic rights, it's a bit difficult to do that. Um, so I want to argue that naming and shaming may be relatively ineffective for torture, not only for the reasons that Roth argued, although I think that is also the case here, but for a range of other reasons. So the basic theory underpinning naming and shaming is something like this. If the reality of violations can be exposed and their status as violations of universal norms can be demonstrated, then publics will pressure governments to bring about changes required to stop them. Now, bracket how governments are going to do that. I'm just talking about the theory of change of naming and shaming itself. Now, we have now have some fairly good impact evaluation data on the efficacy of naming and shaming as a prevention strategy, and it indicates quite variable results. So sometimes it works, sometimes it makes any, doesn't make any difference, and sometimes it makes things worse. Um, most importantly, the research indicates that the efficacy of this strategy has quite particular scope conditions. Um, and it's precisely in countries with the worst and most entrenched human rights violations that many of those scope conditions don't hold. In particular, naming and shaming is most effective. Firstly, where there are strong independent institutions, including an independent judiciary, where publics condemn the violation in question and where elites are not disadvantaged by the violation being curtailed. Now, I'm going to leave the third because the relationship between elites and banal torture is a bit complicated um, and just focus on the first two. In many countries where torture is endemic in state security institutions, including in the two that we were looking at, <coughs> institutions like national human rights commissions and the judiciary lack... Uh, independent authority. 
Um, so the first one doesn't hold. And it's by no means clear that there are anti-torture majorities, or at least majorities that condemn torture against the people who are most likely to be tortured. Um, actually, there, are the, there is no longer an anti-torture majority in the United States either. As of 2008, that's what the statistics indicate. In summary, it would seem that many of the approaches to preventing torture that have been endorsed by the international human rights community might be ill-equipped um, to address what in fact drives torture in those countries where it's most entrenched and endemic. Um, so I've got about 10, 15? Um, 10. 10? Yep, cool. Um, all right, so I want to now briefly, and I've, um, I'll, I've got, if you can hand them around, I think it's just one page. I've got some quotes there, um, which I won't necessarily read out because I want to, oh no, I think I have time. Um, I want to fairly briefly describe um, what our research indicated as the principal classes or types of factors that sustained torture, and then I want to talk about how we might map them conceptually. Um, I'm not going to talk about the research methodology, but I'm happy to answer questions about that. Now, given the breadth of the findings, I'm going to group uh, the causal factors into several categories. The first are a range of what I call organisational level factors, including things like pressure to charge people with crimes, quotas for charges and arrests, the lack of equipment for proper investigations, the lack of training for personnel in investigations, appalling, appalling conditions of detention and work conditions, the normalisation of violence in the organisation, and incentives, as I was talking about before, that aren't linked to respect for human rights, failure of, of leadership. So this is a quote not from my work, but from Thomas Martin's work on Tiha uh, Jail outside Delhi. It's the first quote you've got there. In Tiha Jail, the least harmful way to conduct one's work involved inflicting suffering on others. The warders strongly opposed challenges to such coping practices, even when this challenge was introduced under the banner of something as universally and indisputably good as human rights. And this is a quote from one of the prisoners, the prison guards who he interviewed. The human rights people ask us to take the snake out of the basket and put it around our neck. So these are the kind of organisational level factors. The second uh, category are legal level factors, so obviously the absence of effective laws criminalising torture, but also um, the failure to, uh, to have laws in place that prevent evidence obtained under torture being used in courts and corrupt legal systems. So the second quote I have is from Rachel Wall's book, Just Violence. Um, from her interviews with police in North India, a further way that officers explain why they must act outside the law to uphold justice is by pointing out flaws in the operation of courts. They argue if, that if they were to arrest someone legally and allow him or her to stand trial, it's highly unlikely that the courts would produce justice. They observe that trials are often delayed for decades, so witnesses and evidence become increasingly tenuous and suspects often be, must often be acquitted. For example, L explained the legitimacy of extrajudicial killing in part by drawing on the anticipated fa failure of the court system. He asserted that police agencies must sometimes assassinate suspects in fake encounters because otherwise who will come and depose against the accused? Trials take years and witnesses will have to wait and travel. Given the situation, police argue, 
that even if they leave justice to courts, most crime would go unchecked and the lawlessness of society will increase. So they position themselves vis-a-vis a corrupt, delayed and, and, and failed judicial system. The third category of factors I've already touched on, cultural or social factors, like the belief that certain people need to be treated violently, either to civilise them or to get them to confess their crimes, views about levels of civilisation of certain types of people and patterns of entrenched patterns of dehumanisation and discrimination along lines of caste, ethnicity, sexuality and so on. Um, so this is a quote from a psychologist who we interviewed in Nepal. In our context, violence starts at home, the gender violence issues, domestic violence, child rights violations and so on. This all perpetuates the violence culture. In addition to this, the decade-long conflict has further exacerbated this conflict in the form of political violence. Hence, we've been brought up to such a kind of culture. State has limited access to individuals and their homes. They cannot prevent all the root causes of ill treatment, and hence this culture has been transmitted from generation to generation. I would say similarly, police and armed police force are part of this generation. They've been brought up in this culture. They learn such things and get to practice in more authoritative manner once they become an officer. They have state power along with it. Um, and the fourth category I want to mention are political level factors like political corruption and political uh, figures using torture as a form of control or intimidation. And this is a quote from um, Shiva Dungana's work on uh, corruption and police reform. The Nepal police evolved into a repressive institution that enforced the authority of the executives of the day. The development resulted in police personnel at all levels perceiving that as long as they pleased their seniors and political patrons, they were free to do whatever they wanted, regardless of whether it was illegal or immoral. I'll leave the rest of the quote. Um, now, I could add a range of ideological factors, economic factors, cultural factors, but I just wanted to give you a flavour of this kind of ecology. The most important, though, is the overall finding, which is beyond these distinctive factors which I've put into categories. Um, to fully map the, the causality of torture, you need to include this multiplicity of levels and to recognise that the different dimensions are mutually reinforcing. Corrupt political systems, inefficient criminal justice systems, discriminatory attitudes, reliance on violence, cultures that affirm the use of violence against certain types of people, all work together to produce worlds in which torture becomes normalised, authorised, legitimated and opportune. Um, and I think this is really beautifully captured in a quote you've got as quote five from a junior police officer who said, we're all branches in the tree, you can't make only police and change society. This is like a pyramid, the upper people can't be changed without changing the bottom. Um, now, I'll just skim over this because I'm running out of time. You might have noticed that I've not talked about individuals at all, um, and that's partly because I adopt what, what Milgram and Zimbardo called a situational hypothesis, so that violence is about situations, not individuals, but recognising that there's an interaction between individual level factors and institutional situational factors. We can talk about that. Um, so, um, so 
If we understand the causality of torture as this interacting or mutually reinforcing set of factors, what type of framework of causality would be really useful for mapping this conceptually and then in terms of mapping our approaches to prevention? So in recent years there's been quite a shift in human rights discourses towards what's called a root cause analysis. So if you look at something like trafficking of women, they'll often talk about root causes in economic deprivation or child labour, they might talk about lack of education. And at the same time, uh, a significant body of left criticism has developed in the field of human rights, critiquing human rights um, for treating symptoms, not causes, or superstructures, not substructures, um, that underlie violations, if not actually providing ideological cover for the persistence of structural exploitation. So when I started to uh, conduct this research, I used the language of root causes. That was actually how I talked about the project at the beginning, um, because I thought that would help to dig under these agent-focused and legalistic approaches. The problem with the root cause metaphor or model is, I came to think, is that it it retains a linear logic in which certain factors are understood as underlying others and that, and that are in turn underlied by others. Um, it also describes all other relational links using the language of torture, which is not, so, so, sorry, using the language of causality. And causality is really not a good way to describe the relationship between these different factors. So, for example, it'd be completely inaccurate to say that the lack of investigative equipment causes torture, but you could say that it contributes to the conditions under which torture is more likely to occur. Similarly, it would be inaccurate to say that dehumanising attitudes towards certain types of people cause torture, but it might well legitimate it. Um, and you could hardly say that incommunicado detention causes torture, but it certainly creates opportunities for it to occur. Um, or the lack of sanctions doesn't cause torture, but it authorises it. So I thought you needed a more variegated language to think about the relationship between conditions and the, and the problematic behaviour. At the same time, the conceptual scheme of root causes tends to bind us to a lot of the dichotomies that social sciences have been trying to get out of for the last 30 years. So agency structure, objective subjective, material ideal, dichotomies that I think really impede our ability to understand this kind of complex implication of factors. So for that reason, I suggest that a more accurate and productive conceptual schema is an ecological one. Um, if you consider an ecology, you can pull out... Um, is this ending my recording? Um, you can pull out particular components for analytic purposes, but even how we think about the business of preventing torture. And, and, and I... And, um, for me, this analysis goes well beyond the way that we think about torture. This is more broadly something that we might think about um, in preventing a range of other human rights abuses. The first is it implies that before designing any intervention, we need to map the whole ecology. Um, secondly, while we can draw on models that might point us to particular types of factors that we should be looking for, that mapping, so we might know, for example, that there are, there are going to be legal level factors, but that mapping needs to be site specific because ecologies grow in local environments, so you can't have an abstract, these are the factors that we need to be looking for. 
third, if we're going to design single-dimension interventions, say working on legal reform or organisational reform, ideally we want to, after we've done the mapping, we want to select a dimension within the overall ecology that has the greatest influence on others. Or, if that's not possible, which is very often going to be the case because we don't have free reign in how we intervene, we want to anticipate the system effects. Otherwise, an intervention is likely to provoke system adjustments that will impede its effectiveness. So we need to think about that not as a single dimension, but in a, a single dimension intervention into a system which is then going to recalibrate around that adjustment. And fourthly, and for me probably most importantly, the most effective interventions will work across different dimensions of the ecology. And because single organisations always have limited resources, expertise, reach and access, that means that we need to get a lot better at working collaboratively across organisations. So when I started working in Sri Lanka and Nepal, I couldn't even find out who else was doing torture prevention because, you know, everyone wants to keep their grants close to them and we're not talk to each other. But if you understand that it's an, eco it's an ecology or a world that's actually producing this, then we need to combine our access and our expertise to be able to work across that ecology. Um, and finally, my final thing I want to say is that in... in saying that there's a world or there's an ecology that produces torture in this case or other violations, I'm not saying that it's smooth. In fact, it's those points of tension and resistance that are going to give you hints to where, where to intervene. So all systems, they might work in a co-constitutional way, but you think about universities, think about any system that you're in, there are always these points of friction or tension and they can give you a good, uh, a good hint for where you might be able to kind of get a take or get an access into intervention. That's it. Thank you. Great.